It's hard to believe we only have a few weeks left in 2023. It's been a great year for the podcast, and we're thankful for each one of you who are part of our listening community. Our goal at End of the Harvest is to help you live for Jesus and make disciples for Him in the everyday places of life. This year, we've had some amazing guests who gave us insights on how to do that. So we thought we'd end 2023 by highlighting some of those conversations. This week, we've got clips from Susie Walther, Brad Briscoe, and Shelton Markham. Brad explained why the modern church in America is in decline. Susie shared what it takes to endure for a lifetime as a follower of Jesus. And Shelton gave practical advice on how you can disengage from our busy world and reconnect with God. Links to the full episode with each guest are in the description. I hope they encourage you. If somebody is trying to live a life to avoid hardship, they're living in a fantasy world because, I mean, hell is on earth. We're around fallen people and we experience fallen relationships and we're in fallen bodies. And even though heaven has come to earth, it's not here in its fullness. So we don't we still have the crying and the sorrow and the death and the grief. All of those things are still here in disease. So I think that would be bad theology that would mess them up. You know, and I think Paul said in Acts, I mean, we, we inherit the kingdom of God through trial and tribulation. You know, so I think the Bible is really trying to level our expectations and for us to understand that it will not be easy down here, which is why there's so much perseverance talk in the Bible. I am reminded Jesus and I think it's Matthew 24. Is it 13 where he says those who are who endure to the end? They're the ones who are actually saved. So endurance is really important because, you know, it's not. It's not who starts the race. It's who's still there when the race is ended. Right. That that's kind of where the Bible is, that anyone can sign up for the race. Anyone can start the race. Anyone can do that. You know who ran the race to the end because they're puking on the other side. They're like they're mm-hmm. like they're like on the other side, you know, losing it. Yeah. So I think this is the Bible's um this is this is what the Bible is trying to help us catch. This is the thrust of the Bible is that we are not. I mean, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you got to take up a cross. I mean, I don't know that there is a way to think through the Christian life rightly without sensing that endurance will have pain. Endurance will have resistance. Re- endurance will will encounter tribulation and yeah. trial. And yeah. my favorite set of scripture, and I I might have shared this with you before, it's Matthew 10. Like, I don't know why we don't know that like verse by verse, because Mm -hmm. there are not many places in the scriptures where it tells us that Jesus gives us instructions. Like most of the stuff we're like, seriously, God, could Mm -hmm. you just tell me what point one would be and then what the next point is? But Matthew 10 starts off with the fact that Jesus gave his disciples these instructions. Mm-hmm. And the instructions kind of fall into two parts. What he wants that ministry of, uh, of their life to be, the ministry of the kingdom, and how they begin this ministry of evangelism, this ministry of discipleship. He literally tells us how to begin doing 
his version of evangelism, his version of discipleship. Nobody's listening to Jesus. And then when you hit about verse 16, what Jesus begins to tell us is what we can expect when we start doing this ministry of evangelism, this discipleship. So he says, your own people, they're going to attack you. I'm going to send you back as a little sheep among wolves. And he's not even talking about the world. He's talking about like the people in Israel, right? Hmm. And then he's going to, then he tells you, so this is what you can expect from your family. And this is what you can expect from your boss and your coworkers. This is what you can expect from the world. And the whole thing is like, yeah, kind of sucks being a Christian doing this ministry of, you know, evangelism and discipleship. And yet he says, but you want, you, you want my amen. Hallelujah. Keep going. Follow Mm -hmm. me. I did it. And you're not greater than the master. So just do what I did. Just keep going. This is it. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. I think that's, you know, like you said, bad theology, Uh, Jesus. Yeah. If you study just the way he set expectations for his disciples, in the gospels, um, he went out of his way. And yet, you know, it seems that with the disciples, you know, they, they were missing it. And I think it's the same for us today that I think, um, I remember you were the first one who I remember talking about this verse out of Proverbs and you'll have to help me with the reference. I think it's Proverbs 24, 10. Yeah. But it's the verse that says, weak in a crisis, it's weak indeed. Yes. If you are weak in a day of distress, you are weak indeed. So the testing of our faith really is in those crisis moments when we're disappointed, when we don't understand, um, or when something happens to us, when we are rejected, when we do experience that fallout from a a close family member or a friendship because of our faith, not because we've done something wrong, but because we're following Jesus, that that's the testing point. Um, And then, you know, to, to also so, so that's one idea of endurance. But then the second is just that we should expect it. You know, Jesus was constantly saying that this is what it's going to be about as you follow me. Um, and that's why, like you said, the verse uh, out of Matthew that it, he, the one who endures to the end um, will be saved. I, I, I was kind of smiling as you were, we were talking there because I think it's in John 16, but Jesus again, right? The, the night of his betrayal and uh, the night before his death on the cross, he's He's preparing the disciples and uh, he's going through uh, in John 16, talking about all the troubles that they're going to have in the world. You have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. That's out of John 16. But earlier in that chapter is where he says, um, uh, you know, they'll kick you out of the synagogues and, and a day is coming when those who put you to death will think that they are offering service to God. Yeah, they're doing God's will. <laughs> And I'm thinking if I'm a disciple at that table, like, what are you thinking? Because like, he's basically saying, Hey, this is, this is in the future for you guys. Uh, And we know that it was uh, according to church tradition, church history. uh, Most of the disciples did die for their faith. They were put to death um, for their faith. So, you know, just, just making sure that we understand that the reason endurance is so important is because this life of following Jesus is going to take us through deep waters. Yes. Yes. And there's no avoiding it. Yeah. And God's not trying to keep us from avoiding it. That's the bad of theology. Right. The, the, the bad theology is thinking that if I live a certain way, I can avoid the bad waters. If I, if I obey this and I do that, the thou's the do the, what is it? What did you say? The, the, um, thou, thou shalt, shalt not, not thou shalt, thou right. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, if I, if I keep my list straight, you know, somehow it will, I will, it'll grant me immunity right. 
from the trials and the tribulations. And I, yeah. there's just nothing in scripture that says that like ever. Right. Until well, you hit Revelation 21. But like, that's because this earth is gone. The new heaven and the new earth is here. But right. life as we know it on present, you know, earth. Yeah, it's not going to be like yeah. that. And I think that's why Paul said at the end of Second Timothy, you know, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. But that's because he was at the end of his life, his earthly life. So at that moment, he could say, all right, I've endured. I'm at the end here and I've crossed that finish line like you were talking about earlier. And they're getting ready to chop off my head. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, someone who's been very influential in both of our lives is, is Cecil Bean. And yes. uh, something that I can remember him sharing when he was explaining how God brought him to faith and then the work that God did, in, especially in the early years after he came to faith, because those were very difficult years for Cecil. And um, he he shared a quote, and I, I, I don't know what the source of the quote was, but it was something along the lines of um, his life, uh, the foundations of his life were being shaken, and it was so disruptive that it drove him to God, only to find out that it was God who was shaking the foundations. <laughs> and so uh, I think there's this, uh, this understanding that we need to have. So, so many of us, you know, we're, we're hoping that God will make our life easier, smoother, uh, more prosperous. Uh, and certainly we, we enjoy, I, I've enjoyed far more blessings than I could ever deserve. However, you know, another thing that Cecil would say is that God did not call you to himself to make your life easier, but to make you stronger, uh, to, to become an overcomer, which is something that we see throughout the scriptures and especially there in, in the book of Revelation. So this mindset is very important for us to, to try to adopt. And it's something that does not come naturally to us. And it didn't come naturally to the first followers of Jesus. So I suppose we can take some encouragement, but that's part of why we want to talk about it today. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is just really important. And again, it's the bad theology, because even though God does promise things like abundance and, and spiritual prosperity and those kinds of things, what he has not declared, what he has not communicated is how he defines that. Right. Mm -hmm. And how we're going to get there. And I think sometimes, too, we, we forget that that God is supernatural and he is invested in his spiritual kingdom and in his realm. This is what he's invested in. And, and he's told us that this space that we're in right now is very temporary. So God is not invested in doing things that just secure the temporary in our lives. He's invested in securing eternal things, supernatural mm -hmm. things. Right. And he will he will he will allow the 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 natural with its good and its bad its uses and its abuses this is the whole idea behind i can work all things out for the good right not that all things are good but i i think what god is trying to let us know is that he's committed to making sure that hell does not have to have the final say in our lives this is what god is committed to he's not committed to the fact that hell won't have its effect in our life He's committed that it won't have its final say in our life. And this is the endurance that we don't give up, that we don't give up until we can, until we get the hallelujah, right? Yeah. That we just keep going because God's working something out. Hey friends, it's Andrew and John for Into the Harvest. Our mission is to inspire and resource God's people to live the ancient faith in modern life. We want you to be a disciple and make disciples of Jesus in every nook and cranny of the world that we live in. 
2023 has been a great year of growth for this ministry, and we've got big plans for 2024. So we're here today asking for your help. Our year in fundraiser is happening now, and you can help us finish strong and launch us into the new year. If you believe in this work and has helped you this year, would you consider making a donation today? There's a link in the show notes to this episode and every gift matters. So thanks for being part of our community and helping grow this mission. People are either skeptical or hostile to organized faith and especially to organized Christianity uh, here in the West. So yeah, we've got some real challenges and I think we have to go back to the foundations, which is really what these five shifts that um, that you were highlighting are about. So let's let's dive into those um, and I'm just going to kind of read them from your your thread and then we can kind of share a little bit or talk talk through each one in turn. So the first one that you mentioned is is that we need to recapture the missionary sent nature of the church. So. Talk a little bit more about what you mean by recapturing that and, and how we might go about doing it. Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually, so in the thread, I mentioned these five shifts. I actually think there are as many as 10 or 11 or 12 of these paradigm shifts. I think the church needs to experience. But anytime I had the opportunity to talk about any of these paradigm shifts, if I only have time to talk about one, it's this one. It's recapturing the missionary nature of the church. I think this is the most foundational um, paradigm shift of, of all. And, and, and in fact, I think all the other paradigm shifts in a sense, uh, flow out of this one. So mm-hmm. now most of the time when I talk about this, I'll, I'll actually say there, there's kind of like a, a part one and a part two, um, of this first paradigm shift. It's really about the missionary recapturing the missionary nature of God and recapturing the missionary nature of the church. Now I'm going to boil this down because normally just this first paradigm shift, um, I, I could take like an hour session and just unpack this, but what this is really about, it, there's two different ways to recapture the missionary nature of God. One is to re-examine the grand narrative of scripture. So if we go back and look at the overarching story of scripture, it's all about God's mission. And, mm-hmm. and I'll say often that it's just, it's real easy to kind of forget that because when we teach and preach scripture, we're usually preaching on a particular Bible or I mean a, a particular book or a particular chapter, or sometimes even a particular verse or two. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But when we do that, sometimes it's easy to forget that the overarching story or what some people call the meta narrative is all about God's redemptive purposes. It's all about God redeeming and reconciling all of creation back to himself. So that's one way to be, just be reminded that God is a missionary God. But a second way that's a little more concrete or a little more practical is to examine what I call the sending language in scripture. There's this amazing, beautiful theme in scripture from Genesis to Revelation, where God is constantly calling men and women out and sending them to participate in his redemptive purposes. So I wish we had time. I could give you examples of this. I mean, there's a Hebrew. I'll give you an example in the Old Testament. There's a Hebrew verb in the Old Testament uh, that we translate to send. It's used 800 times in the Old Testament and 200 of those 800 times it's used with God as the subject. In other words, it's God who commissions and it's God who sends. Mm -hmm. So it's it's throughout all the historical books of the Old Testament, even the poetic books of the Old Testament. But it's especially prominent in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So, again, just get this. God is constantly calling men and women and he's sending them. Well, if you move into the New Testament, 
you see it in all the gospels, you see it in the book of Acts, you see it in all of Paul's epistles. But let me give you one example in New Testament, and then let's talk about the, how this relates to the church. The best example in the New Testament is in the gospel of John. So think about it like this. The gospel of John opens with the incarnation, John chapter three, verse 16 and 17, which I would call that's the ultimate sending. You know, God, the father takes on human flesh and sends the son. And then the gospel of John closes with John chapter 20, verse 21, where Jesus says, just as the father has sent me, now I'm sending you. Well, in between those two verses in the gospel of John, nearly 40 times, Jesus refers to himself as the one sent by the father. So here's what we see in the in the in the gospels. We see God, the father sending the son, God, the father and the son sending the spirit and then God, the father and the son and the spirit sending the church. Well, here's why that's important. Here's why it's important to, to just be reminded that God's a missionary God by looking at the grand narrative. This is why it's important to, to see the sending language in scripture. Here's the way I would say it is that God, the, the church doesn't just send missionaries. The church is the missionary. See, if God is a missionary God and he is, then we as his people are missionary people. Well, here's why this is a huge paradigm shift, is I would argue that the vast majority of people in the church, they don't understand the church that way. They don't understand that the church is a, a sent missionary entity, and they don't, they don't see themselves as a missionary. So see, this first paradigm shift, I think is it's kind of two-part. There, there's two paradigm shifts here. First, we need to recapture the missionary nature of the body of Christ as the corporate body that, that the church, again, the church doesn't just send missionaries. The church is the missionary. So there's a paradigm shift corporately, but then I would argue there needs to be a paradigm shift individually because the vast majority of people do not see themselves as missionaries. They don't see themselves as a sent person person. So I think the, the reason this is so foundational is it, it it will change everything. I mean, when we begin to see ourselves as a sent missionary person and we begin to see the church as a sent missionary people, it changes the way we think about the places where we live. It changes the way we think about discipleship and evangelism. It changes the way we think about church leadership. It changes it changes the, the way we think about our gathered times. Mm -hmm. um, I just think it absolutely influences and changes everything. So the very first paradigm shift and the first shift that I shared in that Twitter uh, thread was that, that the church in North America, we have to recapture the missionary nature or essence of the church. Yeah, man, I appreciate everything you said. And I can see that we could actually talk for the rest of our time on this first point. <laughs> I think it's great because it really gets into our sense of identity and um, our mindset. So like who, who we understand ourselves to be and then how we're thinking about ourselves and life as we go about our daily activities. And of course, as we go about gathering as believers, um, I, I love what you're saying about trying to capture that that meta narrative. And it is very easy for us to to miss the forest for the trees, especially when we're so zoomed in on different uh, passages or even individual doctrines of the faith. We can kind of miss that big that big picture. I'm really uh, excited that you brought up John. That's um, I uh, I once had the Gospel of John memorized where I could recite it uh, from start to finish. Um, but I share that because it took me about a year to memorize the gospel. And then several years later, I decided I was just going to read it in one sitting. 
And so I sat down and I read through John from, from one through 21. And that's what hit me is over, I think I counted 42 times where Jesus, who was Jesus? He was the one who was sent. That, that's the number one way that he presented himself in the gospel of John to, to his disciples, to the crowds, um, to his opponents. That, that, that's, that's how he understood himself to be. That's how he described himself. And so um, I, I agree uh, wholeheartedly that we can miss it if we don't learn how to kind of capture that, that bigger picture. And then secondly, it does seem like that's how Jesus presented himself. And like you said, he finishes by saying, like you said, just as the father sent me, I'm now sending you. So having that, that uh, identity within ourselves, we've got a resource. And at the end, I'll let you share some resources as well. As well. I know you've written several books that folks might want to check out. I'm sure you have other uh, online resources, but we've got one that's called the foundation series. And that's really the, the purpose of that is to, to capture what is that grand story that we see from Genesis to revelation uh, that's at our website. So we'll put a link on that as well, but, but we probably got to move on. And uh, I think your second shift that you described really dovetails really well or flows out of this first one. And that is that we need to activate all the people of God to engage in the mission of Jesus in their local context. So this, this seems to me like um, one, who's going to be involved, who's going to see themselves as being sent and then where and how are they going to live out that, uh, that sent uh, mission? Yeah. So, you know, for, for some networks or denominations, we, we might use the language of the priesthood of all believers. And, and we, we like to say we believe that, but a lot of times the church in North America, we don't really engage in that. Cause if we really believe in the priesthood of all believers, then we would activate all the people of God and not just some. So I think, man, there's lots of different implications and applications to, to this second shift. But a couple of things I would say is I think uh, foundationally where we need to start is we need to at least diminish and in some ways blow up a couple of divides. So one mm -hmm. of them is what I call the sacred secular divide. So and where the sacred secular divide rears its ugly head, the worst, I think, is the way we understand vocation. So in other words, uh, unfortunately, we think that there are some vocations or callings that are sacred and other callings or vocations are secular. And I don't think that's helpful. And, it, and I don't think it's biblical that, in other words, we need to help people understand that regardless of what God's called them to do in the marketplace, they're in full-time ministry and we need to help them see how does their calling or job or work vocation in the marketplace, how does it contribute to and participate in the mission of God? So that's one place we need to start is we need to help people understand their vocation and how it fits into mission that when they leave the, the house on Monday morning, they don't somehow leave God behind, but they're entering into the mission field. So that's one of the divides. Another divide I think we need to diminish or completely blow up is what's called the clergy lady divide that we need to get away from professionalizing mission and ministry that somehow just the professionals, you know, it's, it's back to this first shift. I said that I think there's a, a corporate paradigm shift and an individual paradigm shift. And the way you can illustrate the individual paradigm shift is just ask people what comes to mind when they hear the word missionary. And most people will say, Oh, it's the paid professional. It's the trained professional that we send to far off places or for foreign fields. They don't see themselves as a sent missionary person. Now, if we had time, I think we could even talk about that language of missionary that I think the word missionary has some baggage. And in mm -hmm. fact, I'll say, I'll, I think that needs to be kind of like in-house language. But what I, I want people to understand is that they're a sent 
person, that they live where they live for a purpose. They work where they work for a purpose. They hang out in the social spaces. They hang out for a purpose. God has sent them there. And and when you begin to, to recognize that, then we begin to take responsibility for those places that God has sent us. We start to take responsibility for our neighborhoods and our workplaces and social spaces. So, but that only happens is if we diminish this clergy lady divide and, and we deprofessionalize mission and ministry. And we help people see that all of us, we're all saints have been called to the work of ministry. So yeah, that whole activation, all the people of God, as you said, Andrew, it flows directly out of recapturing the missionary nature of the church. When we see ourselves as the church, the body of Christ, then we see that we have been sent to participate in Jesus's mission in those places. So, and you said, you know, that's a little bit of the why, the how, um, there's lots of different ways you can frame this, but one of my favorite ways to frame like missionary behaviors and activities is around what's, uh, where there was a sociologist that wrote a book. Now I wouldn't, I love this book. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to everybody, but it's a book that was written probably 35 years ago by a sociologist. His name was Ray Oldenburg. And he wrote a book called the great good place. And the reason I like the book is it's all about third places and third places are just, um, places of common ground or neutrality where people used to go and hang out. But the reason I bring the book up is that Oldenburg coined this phrase in the book. And I remember reading this 30 years ago and thinking, oh my goodness, that would be a great way to frame what it looks like to live out a missionary lifestyle. And here's a phrase that he coined. He talks about our first, second, and third places. So from a sociological perspective, when he talks about those places, here's what he means. The first place is where you live. It's your home. Second place is where you work. And third place are these third places, these hangouts, the places of common ground or neutrality. Well, I think that's a really helpful way to think about missionality or living out a missionary lifestyle is think about which of those places. And it might be all three. But for most people, there's one of those that kind of come to the surface. But which of those three places do you feel like God has sent you to today where you're you're to engage people relationally? Is it your your neighborhood or your home where you live? Is it your workplace or is it social spaces? Is it the the cafe or the pub or the 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 coffee shop, the beauty parlor, barbershop, the place, the, the social spaces you inhabit? I just think that's a really good place when we activate all the people of God to engage in mission, we're talking about helping engage in God's mission outside the walls of the church. And I think the best place to help them think where are those places is for them to think about where they live, where they work and where they hang out. I do think that in modern life, we talked about busyness probably being something that has always been there, but you and I were talking before we recorded and this this modern technology and the noisiness of modern life it is probably something that is unique, at least at the the level that we we experiencing we experiencing it today. Oh for sure. You you think even the idea of turning on the radio and hearing music come out of that. Right. That's that's <laughs> within the last one hundred years. Yeah. You know, like, like like that's that's not in the in the in the history of humanity. Yes, uh, it is a very new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you add to that the the uh, invention of screens, right? And motor vehicles, 
and uh, the sounds of, of the world. You In the recent times, you add into that in the mid-90s, here comes the Internet. And then right. in the late 2000s, or, or here comes the smartphone. The smartphone. These are new things, and really... And, and there are many people writing on on this of, of we're just now learning the negative effects of mm-hmm. that constant noise and distraction right. and availability of sound. And that, but, but it doesn't take research to say, hey, this has had a profound effect on our spirituality. Absolutely. Because think about your life and how often are you silent anymore? Right. Well, I would encourage folks to go back. We we had a podcast maybe a month or so back with Samuel James. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so folks who listen to this regularly know that this is a theme that, that we've been trying to address. Um, but he talked about how, particularly with the advent of the smartphone and um, the availability of mobile um, internet, that the internet went from being something that you opted into to something that you have to purposely opt out of. Mm. And that's a huge shift that happened around 2010, like yeah. you said. So going back to the radio, typically, if you wanted to listen to a radio program, if you wanted to listen to Superman in the 50s, you would have to go into your living room or wherever that mm-hmm. radio was, you'd have to turn it on and then you would ha- you would be stuck. You'd be stuck in that space mm-hmm. for however long you wanted to listen. And so you had to opt into it and today, we actually have to be purposeful about withdrawing and opting out. That's, that's well said. And yeah. this, this, what we're going to cover today is just a practical resource to help people. One way, not, not the only way, but one way that folks can be intentional about opting out. But it's not, again, it, the principle is, is ancient, you know. It is ancient. Psalm 46 I think about and what Psalm we were 46, talking about. Be Still, No, but I think about Jesus. Uh, um, Dallas Willard's book, <laughs> Spirit of Disciplines, yeah. is a fantastic resource. I would highly recommend it. And he calls it How God Changes Lives, um, mm. right, and is kind of the subtitle. And he makes the big argument, and we've probably talked about this before, that that we often see the life of Jesus, his his how he ministers to people, his ability to stand up to discipline or to um, temptation, all the things of Jesus, and we want to perform and live life on that level, and we talk about Christ likeness, but what we often don't include into that idea of Christ likeness were the spiritual disciplines of Jesus, of his prayer life, and say mm-hmm. that you don't get the outward fruit of of a spiritual life without the spiritual discipline of of doing that and so mark one first chapter of the book of mark uh verse 35 says that that and the only reason i know that is because i used it in my sermon yesterday but that jesus woke up very early in the morning and uh, went to a, a solitary place to pray mm-hmm. so you're talking you know two thousand years ago Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, uh, Luke echoes this in Luke chapter five. Mm-hmm. He says Jesus would regularly withdraw to solitary places to pray. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then in Jesus, when he teaches in the Sermon on the Mountain how to pray, he says, and when you pray, go to your room, shut the door, right? And God who sees what's done in secret or in solitude will reward that. Mm-hmm. And and so the New Testament is not silent on this. And Jesus very much teaches like this is and models. This is how 
this is how you're, you're connected with the Lord. And the disciples would often in that Luke passage, they come looking for him like, where have you been? People are looking for you. <laughs> and it's so right. funny of, of he modeled, hey, if I'm going to impact all these people for the glory of God, I have to spend time. But what does that look like? Um, you you got to disengage. And Jesus, in order to engage the world with the love of God, specifically disengage the world. Right, uh, multiple times throughout his his everyday life, uh, right, or and which is a fascinating thing to think about. One of the um, one of the beliefs that I think we absorb in modern life, and cer- certainly here in the West, is that a full life is the best path to a fulfilling life. So the more I can cram mm-hmm. in, and this I think even affects us as followers of Jesus and as the church. Mm-hmm. When we think about growing in our faith, we think of it in terms of engagement, not disengagement. What you're talking about is actually purposely withdrawing uh, to a quiet place, a solitary place like Jesus did. And what Jesus modeled was that, so much so that when we begin to practice this, one thing I appreciated when, when we did this with our church family was that it was intentional, but it was intentional in the way of creating the space, first of all, so so blocking out that time, and then also having a framework because sometimes I know for me when we first started I mean the first 30 or 45 minutes just might be unplugging mm-hmm. and some a lot of that's mental mentally um, disengaging detoxing is kind of what I <laughs> detoxing. call it like, like you, yeah so that you can begin to hear that that still small voice I heard that from a lot of people on the retreat that that first hour was was tough Right. Awkward. <laughs> Awkward. Because if when's the last time you sat still? You you mentioned Psalm forty six. Uh, be still and know that I am that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. Um like how often are are you still? We almost live in a culture where stillness is seen as laziness. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Or we're missing out. Like are we are FOMO. I'm right? losing yeah, something. Yeah, like I'm losing out. time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. You're either on the grind, you got to go, or you need to be entertained. And, and, and yeah. And so the idea of purposely sitting still and doing nothing, of being silent before mm-hmm. God, um, is such a foreign, if you haven't done it, one, mm-hmm. one, the more you do it, the, the less awkward that is, the mm-hmm. easier the detox is. Several years ago, I went up to, in this vein, I went up to the mission at San Luis Rey here in San Diego. Um, and, um, they, it was during COVID and, um, they'll let you come and do a spiritual retreat there. So they have dorms, um, they'll provide your food and it's a silent monastery. So nobody's going to talk to you. So I purposely, uh, went up, it's like, it's like 50 bucks a night for, if you're in ministry, it might be a little bit more if you're not. Um, and that includes your meals. That's it's just a wonderful gift to, uh, to go do. And because it's COVID, like there's nobody else there. And right. so for, uh, for three days, I was, I was just, I didn't, I didn't talk to anybody. And, uh, that was probably the first time I had done that, uh, in the history of my life. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I mean, when would you do that? I don't know. Well, <laughs> and my family would crack up at that. Of, of, I am a talker. That's what I do. And, um, I found it extremely difficult for the first day, like just mm-hmm. twiddling my thumbs, like, what do I do? But by the third day, there was such depth mm-hmm. to my time with the Lord and in the word and, and, uh, just 
everything was profound to me by that third day. Sitting down and looking at a flower, mm-hmm. I could see God in the midst of that. Watching a bird in a bird bath, man, it's probably one of my favorite spiritual moments of that thing of of that whole retreat. And yet the first day I saw all those same things and I could not see anything profound about it. It was just awkward and weird of, yeah, that's pretty, okay. Mm. But the journey of going from uh, awkwardness to depth mm-hmm. and the only time thing that changed was just more time of being silent uh, mm-hmm. and listening to the Lord. And by man, by the time I left, it was, it was, it was deep and wonderful. It was good. Well, we've got a resource that we're going to link. I think you actually put this together, yeah. if, uh, if I remember right, but... We'll have this for folks. It's actually, you can print it out. Um, It's just a prayer retreat guide and um, it's online. So we'll make that available for free. But let's go ahead and dive into those five steps because there is a framework that folks can follow because it is so um, unusual for us as modern people to to have these times of withdrawal. And you mentioned three days. I think we took three hours, four hours, something like that. You can definitely take baby steps to to get started. We we talked about this uh, before we started recording too. I think it's wise. This the exam is actually meant to be done every night. And so that's what Ignatius would teach. This is a daily practice. And you can do it in 10, 15 minutes. And there's some really good, you just, you can YouTube um, the exam and they will just walk you through. Mm-hmm. And it's like a five minute and you hit pause. And if you need, if you need that, want that. This resource I like better. And we'll walk through the the steps of, of what kind of Ignatius lays out. And I put a little bit of, of a spin on it for what kind of makes sense uh, to me for us, for our church. But I think, I think it's helpful and there's scripture at each place and some instructions in here. So yeah, um, it, I, I think it's a fantastic practice to, to work with. I do think as well though, it, it, um, you, I thought you said this beautifully earlier of, of we, we have to have a sense of what is the purpose of this? Mm-hmm. The purpose is not silence for silence sake. Mm-hmm. The purpose is to meet with God. Right, just like the same thing of reading scripture, the purpose is not just to read words on a page, right? Like mm-hmm. it is to meet with the living God. Like that's got to be our goal. Here's what I want to do. And so we'll get it. That's what the exam is all about. Is right, is, just reconnecting with God, slowing down enough so that we can hear His voice. 